The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I want to begin this evening doing something that's a little bit uncomfortable for me, and that is um, apologizing. I messed up a few weeks ago, the last time I was preaching. Um, I told a story that I believe to be true, and I got it from a, what I thought was a very respectable source, but I was informed by a couple of people after the service that the story I told was, in fact, not a true story. Um, the story was about Winston Churchill and how Churchill um, was, was saved once by Anthony Fleming, and then later on, Fleming invented penicillin and saved him again, and Churchill's um, parents had paid for the school. Of, it's just a, a wonderful story. You can tell why people like to tell it. Um, it was actually first told in 1943, uh, while the war was still going on, and it was in two newspapers on the same day, but it was just, it was just English propaganda. And they told the story because the drug that actually healed Churchill of his pneumonia was um, traced back to a, a German scientist. But the English were fighting against the Germans, and so that didn't sound very good to say the English prime minister was saved by a German. And so they invented a story where Anthony Fleming was the hero who invented penicillin. But it wasn't penicillin that, that healed him. Anyways, all that to say that you can't trust everything you read in a newspaper. You can't trust everything you read in a commentary, even a good one. And you can't trust everything that I say. All right? So I'm, I'm sorry about that. I, should have, I really should have checked into it more. Um, it was a good story, but not a true story. I am thankful that we can trust the Word of God, and I hope that what I said from the Word of God was true last time, and I hope that it will be once again this evening. And so if you turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, let's turn our attention there this evening. Often I like to recap and kind of get you an idea of where we've been already in the book, but this evening I want to take a page from Pastor's playbook and just begin by reading a few verses here because I want to get your initial reaction to these verses. So we'll begin reading at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Verse 13, sorry. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning our yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. If I read those verses, what is your immediate reaction to them? We just read a portion where Peter has just commanded the church to do a number of different things. Right? He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end, be holy for I am holy. Don't follow your former lusts that you had in your ignorance. In other words, the, the things that your flesh wants to do, stop that. Instead of doing that, be holy because God is holy. Do all of these things. I wonder what your initial reaction to that is. Because i got to tell you, uh, for me, and I think for a lot of a huge number of people in our culture, the way they view the Bible and the way they view God and the way they view Christianity is that God is just trying to force people not to have fun. 
Like he wants to take away the things that we enjoy to do so that our life becomes more difficult, so that our life becomes a life of religious piety, but it just removes like the joy out of it. And it's really, really unfortunate that that's how we view it. And I got to tell you, that's one of the hardest things to convince teenagers that's not true. Because teenagers are just convinced, and, and, and as many of us have been or are, that the world has all the fun and Christians are just stuck following what God tells us to do as obedient children. Like, we just have to obey. Just get in line. Okay? It's like the message of the Bible is just, yes, okay, now you're saved, but now you have to do all these things that are very difficult so that your life is, is hard until finally you get to go to heaven. Like, heaven is like the relief of all this terrible life that God, God made you have on earth. And, and one of the problems with that thought process is that what happens is if we start to kind of be holy, if we start to try and change our life to do right, then we imagine in some way that we're earning what's to come in the future. Like, okay, so, so God said, do this, and someday you'll get this. It's like, okay, I guess I have to do this so that someday my life is better. So I'm going to go through this difficulty. And it's completely the wrong way of looking at it. Because it, it doesn't make God a loving father who loves his children and wants the best for his children. It, God, it makes God this, this terrible dictator who's trying to control us and manipulate us and take away our joy. And that is not the way we should view God. And so what, I, what I've seen Peter do all the way along is give us over and over and over again all the blessings of our salvation, all the reasons we have to be joyful in this life and to um, f- want to follow God, all the motivation that we, need, we would ever need to follow God, and with it, all of God's character that makes all of this true and possible. And so the commands that God gives us isn't rooted in, or it, it, it is rooted in his good character. Right? Jesus is good. We, we heard that song tonight. He is good. And he wants what is good for us. And so what Peter has done all the way along is explain how he's been good. And it's not like in verse 13, we have a different God who now wants something bad for us. It's the same God now explaining to us all the, all the good that we've have, we have in the future, all the good that he's given to us in the past through Christ, and now the good way that we're supposed to live in this life that is good for us and for his glory. Right? So let's look at verse 13 once again. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Imagine what happens to an athlete when they arrive at the stadium to compete. They arrive at the stadium, and maybe, like a lot of professional hockey players do, they're wearing very nice clothes, they're wearing a suit and tie. And you think, they don't look like they're ready to play, right? Maybe they're dressed casually, they just show up in whatever they want to wear. But what happens is, they go into the dressing room, and they put on all of their gear, and they get ready for the game. And very soon, all of the, the problems and all the things that were going on in their life and in their mind start to fade to the background, because the only thing that they need to think about at this point is the game. And so they strap everything up tight, they take anything that's loose and dangling and and, and hanging that could get in the way, and they tuck it in, and they get rid of any type of obstacle that would be in their way, any kind of hindrance that they might have, and they get ready to play the game. 
And when I read this verse, it's like, as a believer, wherefore, because of all of that's come before this, because of this incredible inheritance we have, and because of the good God that we serve, and because of what he's done for us, we need to gird up the loins of your mind. We need to, to get our mind and our thought process every single day ready for the battle ahead. Okay? Get into your dressing room and get strapped up and ready for the fight. Ready for the race that he's called you to run that day. The problem a lot of times is that we just live without this kind of thought, without this preparation. Like every single day, we just get up and do whatever we're going to do. And we don't think about the fact that today is a day where God's going to put something in my way. Today is the day where I might have an opportunity to bring glory to God. Today is the day that my faith will be tested. Today is the day that I need to be ready to live out my faith. And so he says, wherefore, gird up, get yourself ready, be sober. Be sober is be clear-minded. It's the the opposite of being intoxicated with worldly pursuits and concerns. Don't let everything from this life cloud your thinking. Don't let it intoxicate you and and, and make you do things that that wouldn't be befitting the gospel. No, clear your mind. Think think rationally. Think eternally. Uh, I think about being sober, just the, the idea that when sometimes when we're active, in service, we think that we're doing everything right. But that's not always the case. Remember with the story with Mary and Martha and how Martha is there serving and she's getting food ready and she's trying to take care of all these people in her house and she thinks that's just the most important thing to do. And it's just driving her nuts that Mary is, in the, is sitting with all the guys listening to Jesus teach. And she's so frustrated. And so Jesus explains to Martha, 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 why are you so comfortable with these, with these things when what you need to do is you need, and Mary shows us in the better part, we need to sit at the feet of Christ. When I think of being sober, I think of being clear-minded, like, like getting our priority state, doing what we're doing for the right reasons. It's not just about being active and being busy, but thinking the right way. Be sober and hope to the end. Notice that that's a command, to hope to the end. It's a command we must diligently obey. Remind yourself all the time of the hope that we have. In Luke chapter 21, verse 34, Jesus says it this way. He says, take heed to yourselves. In other words, pay attention to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And so that day may come upon you unawares. Be careful that that you don't allow your life to cloud your thinking that you don't get so caught up in the affairs of today that you never think eternal thoughts. He says, pay attention to yourself. How many times do you tell us to watch and pray? Be diligent. Pay attention to your surroundings. I know it seems like an obvious thing, but Christians just don't do it enough. We don't think about eternity. We don't think about what this life is about. We don't purposefully live enough. And I think we just hope that we're going to react the right way. But God is a God who, who tells us to be ready and tells us to be prepared for what's to come. It goes on in verse 14 and says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. So if that first verse in 13 is your thought life and, and taking care, having that prepared, now he moves into your, your behavior. As obedient children. Don't live as though you don't know the truth. 
don't fashion yourselves according to your former lust and your ignorance. See, I understand, and I think Peter understands, why they were what they were before they were saved. I understand why they were in sin, why they were using the language they were, why they were um, having the thoughts that they were. I understand that, that they were drinking and on drugs and watching porn and just living life of selfish, selfishness and pride. It, it makes sense that sinful people follow their flesh. And so Peter's not saying, why were you ever like that? He says, you had these former lusts in your ignorance, but now you're different. Now you're a child of God. See, you didn't know any better, and so the world told you that sin was fine and normal, and your flesh said, I absolutely agree, and so your conscience just didn't speak loud enough, couldn't speak loud enough. And and instead, in your former life, your conscience was changed, altered, to match what your flesh wanted to do. But that's your former life. That's who you were. You are now children. You are princes and princesses of the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who reigns over the entire universe has adopted you as a son or daughter. You are now representing your heavenly Father. And you are not representing your heavenly Father any less than the Christian sitting beside you or the Christian standing up speaking to you. We're all children. We all represent our Heavenly Father. Don't just leave it for someone else to do the the good stuff. Don't just expect that other church members are going to pick up the slack where you slack off. That's, That's not the right attitude. The right attitude is to have this relationship with God where you say, God, I can't believe what you've done. I can't believe that you've adopted a sinner like me. But now that you have, I'm going to try and do the best I can to live as a child of the king. That's what he's saying. You're you're children now, children of the father. We ought to live as though this is true. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Be not conformed to this world. Let's not allow ourselves just to think and do everything the world does. Yes, they're going to say it's okay. And yes, we're going to hear that message over and over and over again. And, And the trouble is, you hear a lie long enough and loud enough, you start to believe it. Let's be really careful to be examining what we're hearing. 1 Thessalonians 4.4 says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. In other words, you should be in control of your vessel, in control of your body. You should know how to possess it properly. Yes, it's difficult. Okay? As Gentiles, in your ignorance, your past life, you were just used to doing what your body wanted you to do. We still have that flesh telling us all the time to do that. But as believers, as children of God, we must know how to possess our body, to control ourselves. We know God, and we represent him. The hardest thing, sometimes as parents, is when your children behave poorly in public, right? And all eyes seem to be on them. And it kind of seems like they're embarrassing you. Like you've taught them better, and now why are they acting this way? And we are imperfect parents, and we deserve for them sometimes to act the way that they act. There's a lot of times that they act that way just because we haven't done the job that we should do, and maybe we're embarrassed because we know that's 
manifest to everybody. But how about us as children of God and how we're representing our God, our Father? Do you want to be able to say, yeah, I bet God is embarrassed of me, embarrassed of the way I'm acting? See, God loved you in your sin. He loved you as sinners. And he doesn't love you less when you continue to sin, but it does grieve him as a father who wants to see his children become more and more like Jesus Christ, his son. And so we've got we to take this thing seriously. Children of God, how should we then act? Verse 15, But as he which has called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Peter here is quoting from Leviticus 11, 44, 19, 2, and 20, verse 7. And all of these places are in connection with the law of God. And he's saying, God is holy as revealed in his law. He is a holy and just and righteous God. And so the people of God, the people that call God their God, should strive to be like him. It would be so crazy for us to say, this is my God. This is what's wonderful and awesome about him, and I want nothing to do with the way he acts or wants me to act. Those things don't line up. And it is so obvious when you say it out loud, but when we live our lives in a way that is unholy, and then we say, yeah, God, but I'm going to come to church, and I'm going to praise you and worship you, I'm going to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's a wonderful song. We all love to sing it, right? I hope you do. It's a great song. But how hypocritical. When we act as though in our lives, we want nothing to do with the holiness of God. Your your actions do speak very loudly. It was true for Israel, and they didn't even know the whole plan of God to redeem them. Now, they knew that he would, and they knew that all all of their sacrifices and and all of the, the feasts that they had foreshadowed the redemption that was to come. So they knew it was coming. But we get the full picture of what God did when he sent his son to die for us. And so if they were to live holy because their God is holy, how much more true for the church? We should be holy because our God is holy. There's some people that they don't like this command because it's like we are now telling Christians how they must live. And a lot of people would rather say, well, it should just flow out of your love for Jesus. You shouldn't have to just tell them. Well, Yeah, I I get that. We should love him, and we should look to him. We should look to his sacrifice constantly for our motivation and strength. But we should also be willing to put the effort in, because we can say, this is who God is, this is who I should be. And so work hard to do that. He will give you the strength as you do. Verse number 17. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. This verse is a little bit confusing. It took me a few times to read it and, and, and study it. But what he's saying here is, if you're the people who call on the Father, so you call God your Father, and you know that God, who is your Father, who is God, judges without respect of persons according to every man's work. And he's speaking here not about our eternal judgment, as far as sending us to hell, but he's speaking about the judgment seat of Christ. That that all of us will give an account of our works at the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer will. And so if we know that that's true, and we know that he's going to judge us, not respect a person. So in other words, he's not going to look down in heaven and say like, 
oh, okay, well, well this person, they, they, oh, they really did a lot of bad things, but they were cute. So, you know, it's not like he's the father that's willing to just turn a blind eye to everything bad his children does. No, you know that you have a God that is all-seeing. He sees everything you do, and he's going to judge you without respect of persons. He's not going to take into account that you're cute. It doesn't matter to him. And so you will stand before him with your works someday and say, this is what I did with what, you've, with what you've given me. The fact that we know that should cause us to pass the time of our sojourning. Okay, and the idea of sojourning is we're living on this earth as pilgrims for a short period of time. Right? It's kind of a throwback to, I think, verse 4 or verse 1 or 2. It's verse 1 when he said he was speaking to strangers who were scattered. Right? Those strangers scattered weren't just strange because they didn't know Peter or strangers because they were Jews. They were strangers because they're citizens of heaven who are now living in a place on this earth that they don't really belong. And so he says, as sojourners, as citizens of heaven who are now, who's now living on this earth for a very limited time, do that, pass the time in fear. And again, this is not a terrified fear because God is a capricious God. This is a fear where I say, I understand that God is good, that God is holy, that God is righteous, and someday I'll stand before him. And I understand that he is powerful. This isn't a God to be trifled with. This isn't a God to brush aside. This isn't a a grandfather in heaven on his rocking chair. This is a, a real and powerful God that someday I'll stand before And I have this one life to live, this one time to live. And so why would I pass this time acting as though none of what I do matters? It does matter. And you have a God who is holy and has commanded you to be holy, to be like him. So you ought to take that very seriously and live in reverential fear of him. Verse number 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. In these verses, Peter continues to pile up the motivation believers have to be holy. Over and over again, you, he says, you know this. You know that you weren't redeemed. You know about these things I'm telling you. This is a reminder that we all need, that we already know. Consider your redemption. That, it was, that you were purchased from a life destined to slavery, to sin, and then eternal hell to pay for it. That's who you were. See, they understood the concept of redemption back then because they had slaves who they were purchased by different people back and forth. And if you wanted to redeem a slave and set them free, you had to purchase that slave, pay whatever the price was. He says you were purchased, you were bought with a price from God. And so consider your redemption, consider the cost that it took, that it wasn't silver and gold. No, there was no silver and gold in the earth. If, If you could... Pastor talking about the pile of stuff. If you can take the pile of stuff of everybody's stuff in this church, or everybody's stuff in Chatham, or everybody's stuff in the entire world, and somehow offer that to God to pay for your sin, it would pay for not one. It wasn't silver and gold, and it wasn't 
your vain conversation or your vain tradition that was passed from your fathers. Now, these things, they're not small things. Like, if your forefathers give you a code, they give you a way of living, a philosophy of life, and then you spend your entire life trying to match that code, trying to live up to those set of standards or rules, that, that morality, that's a difficult thing to do. Can you imagine if we could take a child and just say from, from the time of a child, this is, as a father, this is what I want you to do, and then they spend their whole life doing all of those things? If I pass that on to them, not even that. Not even a kid who's obedient to all of that pays for one sin. And so what he's doing is he's taking the most precious things that you can imagine. The, the preciousness of an entire life, live for something, and the preciousness of, of the most valuable possessions, metals that he can think of, silver and gold. And he says, it's not any of these silly, fleeting, unimportant, vain things which for us would seem like some of the most important things. He said it's not something so unworthy. It is something of far, far more value. It is the precious blood of Christ. It is the God who spoke the world into existence, becoming a man, living a life that is perfect, never sinning once, and then going to the cross willingly and spilling his blood on our behalf. That's what it takes to redeem you. You know that. So consider your redemption. Consider the scope of God's plan. That this was his plan before time began. That it was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The tale is old as time. This is a tale older than time. This is God's plan from before he spoke the world into existence was to send Christ to redeem you. That's how valuable your salvation is. And so we know that. Consider all that was accomplished to make your faith possible, that it was by him that we believe in God, that God raised him up from the dead, that God gave him glory, and all of that happened so that we would put our hope and our faith in God. So that our faith for today, for what we believe today, and our hope for the future would be placed in God, and all of that was for you, done by him. And so because of that, we must place our faith and hope purposefully in God and live for him. So what I want to do with our last few moments this evening is give you from the text five reasons to be holy. God wants us tonight to recognize the need for holiness in our lives. I know this isn't the most popular message. I know this isn't what a lot of Christians want to hear. We, We often just want to hear about all the things that we get. This is what we're called to do. But the truth is, it's, it's not a bad thing. This is beneficial for us. Sometimes we just don't see it. So here are five reasons to be holy. Number one, the promise of a future inheritance. Verse four, Peter wrote, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's what you have to look forward to. And one day, Christ will will be revealed once again as the Lord of Lords. Verse 13 says, it's until the day that he is revealed. And so this is our promise of future inheritance. Our problem is we've been bred and trained to be very impatient people. We want everything right now. Everything in our world is designed to be right now. And if it's not right now, then it's not worth having. 
I read about a sci- uh, an experiment that a bunch of scientists did on children back in 1970. It's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Has anybody heard of this? Really cool experiment. Um, you probably couldn't get away with it nowadays, but what they did is they took 600 kids. This was, it was two scientists from Stanford University. Their names were Walter, Michelle, and E.B. B. Ebison. It's a crazy name. And they wanted to test the patience of children and then to see based on their patience, based on their ability to defer gratification, what impact that would have on their lives going forward. So they take 600 children ages 4 to 6 and they take one of them at a time. They put them in a room with this counselor, this instructor, and the instructor gives them all the instructions. And so he explains that here's a marshmallow. This marshmallow is a good marshmallow. It's going to taste delicious. However... If you will wait until I come back into the room, I will give you two marshmallows. If you want, you can eat it now, but if you wait until I come back into the room, you get two. And so then once they, they, would, they would have a room that didn't have a whole lot of things to do, so the kid was kind of forced to sit at this table and look at the marshmallow. And it would come back in 15 minutes later to see how many children actually waited to eat the marshmallow. They found that a very small minority of children ate the marshmallow immediately. So the door closed, it's in their mouth. Just a few of them did that. Most of them wouldn't go for it immediately. But they found that two-thirds of of the children tested ate the marshmallow before the 15 minutes was up. And only one-third of the children waited. They were willing to defer gratification for something that was better in the future. And what they found as they studied the lives of these 600 kids going forward is that the children that were willing to wait to defer gratification, on average, scored much better on their SAT scores. Um, They went much further in their education levels. They had better body mass index levels. Uh, Just a number of different areas of life that they they kind of surveyed the kids on. They found that the kids that were willing to wait seemed to to do better in their lives. Now, this is a, a purely secular study that illustrates some of what we're learning today. Okay? that sometimes deferring gratification is actually better. Now, what's great here is that we're not talking about two marshmallows. We're talking about an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fades on away and is reserved in heaven for you. And so why should you be holy? Well, think of what you have coming to you. Think of what God has purchased for you. It's silly to think that we as believers will gratefully accept everything God says about our eternal life, but then question him when he says, this is what I want you to do today. We do it, right? We know and we're willing to trust him for our future, but we don't trust what he's saying today, that this is better for you. We think we see more. We don't see the end from the beginning. And Pastor mentioned it this morning. I've seen, he's seen, if you've been a Christian for a while, you will have seen so many Christians just just decide that they're the exception. Decide that they're the ones that aren't going to have to pay the consequences. Decide that their sin is worthwhile and that it's going to work out for them. And you just see the destruction that's caused so often that they just didn't see it coming. And, And it's like, you know it before it happens. And yet, yet they just gladly pursue their sin. 
And it's so unfortunate. And so we have this promise of future inheritance. We must believe that obedience to our Father is better. It is better. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. You want to fight, you want to win, you want to strive for, you want to get a prize. You want to, in anything, you have to be self-controlled. And people are willing to control themselves to such an incredible extreme for these corruptible crowns, these small trophies that say first place. And we have this incorruptible crown that will never fade away waiting for us. And yet we are not willing to show any kind of self-control. So you have the promise of future inheritance. Number two, it is the greatness of the salvation offered. We spoke last time about the prophets of the Old Testament searching out these things diligently. They just wanted to know more about God's plan of redemption. We talked about how the angels are in heaven, and they know so much more than we do. And yet what they are just consumed with is this idea of God saving sinful people. Why would he do it? Look at his incredible grace. And so they spend their time looking into these things. What a thought that that our gospel, the one that we have, that we sometimes take for granted, is something that angels are just enthralled with. And they don't get to experience the redemption like we do. And yet someday they will speak or sing the praises of redemption. We found last week that the Holy Spirit was empowered Sorry, the Holy Spirit empowered men to bring us this message, and that is how great our salvation is, that it's worth God entering people to tell us the story. And we find in our verses this week that this is the plan, this is the salvation that was formed before the foundation of the earth. Is there any type of thing worth getting excited about that can compare to something that was planned before God spoke in the beginning was heaven and earth, that God spoke the earth into existence. There's nothing. The greatness of the salvation offered. Number three, the price that was paid to purchase our redemption. You want a reason to live holy? Think about the price that was paid. Imagine the value of all those, incorruptible, those corruptible things we spoke of, the value of all the silver and gold you can imagine, the value of life that was so self-disciplined to live out the tradition that was handed from your fathers, uh, the, the life that was committed to a certain philosophy. The value of those things is so great, and yet they're nothing compared to the value of the precious blood of Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and from, says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The prince of the kings of the earth loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Imagine that the blood that is so precious is the blood of the God-man. And it's brought us close to God. Hebrews 9.14, something very similar here. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Don't you see that what he's done for you should change the way you think about pursuing holiness? 
It should be something you desire because you know the person calling you to it is the one who died for you. Number four, the impartial judgment of God. We should have a healthy fear of God. We should have a healthy fear of standing before him even at the judgment seat of Christ someday. There shouldn't be a thought that's just like, someday I'm in heaven and everything's going to be great and it won't matter what I've done here. No, it, it will matter. It does matter what you do here. Now, you won't be eternally punished for it, but you will stand before God and give an account of yourself. We do not fear him the way we fear a dictator. We do not fear him the way we fear a man because men, they can't be trusted. They change. They're emotional. We can fear God because we know how awesome and great he is. His character is perfect and unchanging, and therefore, he is not going to wink at our sin. Number five, we should live holy because of the character of the one commanding it. God says, be holy for I am holy. Just about every other command that he'd give, if he he was to put it this way, would seem more palatable, wouldn't it? Be like, be loving because I'm loving. And be like, okay, I'll be loving because you were loving. And we often say that. We often say we should love each other like God loved us, and that's, that's biblical. Um, be powerful, because I'm powerful. Yeah, I'm all for that one, right? Be awesome, because I am awesome. Be great, for I am great. And then we hear, be holy, for I am holy. And all we hear is, stop having fun. All we hear is, you can't do this. No, God is God. He is awesome and, and amazing and perfect in every way, and if if the holiness of God is something that the angels stand around singing about, holy, 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 in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, that the 24 elders will someday praise him for in Revelations 4, 8, if all those things are true and the holiness of God is spoken about so much in the Bible, then maybe the problem is, is not that God's holiness is something to be scared of. Maybe the problem is we just have the wrong view of it. We don't get that holiness is good. It's something that we were actually created by a holy God in his image, created for holiness that at one point, Adam and Eve actually were holy, and they got to walk with God in paradise. And that someday, part of what what we receive when we receive the end of our salvation is holiness once again. So these are good things, and it's the world and and our flesh that twists this into being something that we got to be scared of and something that we don't like. Holiness is not a fearful thing. It is a wonderful thing. But it does require us to say no to our old lust, to say no to our flesh sometimes. It's not easy. and it, it, it is, It's painful, okay, because our flesh is it's pretty loud in our lives, right? It wants its way, and it doesn't like when you take away. It's like it's a child. You take away its toy. You take away its ability to do something, and it just flips out, right? And we've got that constant pressure on us. But saying no to that child is good because God wants us to. Because God says, be holy for I am holy. It is unfortunate that we often read verses like these in a vacuum. And we hear God say, don't do this, and we think, ah, oh, God is just mean. God is just trying to be this buzzkill, this cosmic party pooper raining on our fun parade. And he's not. God is for our joy, and he knows that this is what's best for us. If God was a sadistic God who wanted to see his creation suffer, 
then why would he die in their place? Why would he take the suffering that we deserve on himself? God is a good and loving father, and he wants what's best for his children. And rather than questioning that and trying to figure that out in your life, why not just for a minute trust him? And say, God, I'm going to trust that your way is best, even though I think I'm going to have more fun doing this. Even though I think that this way of life is, is going to be more enjoyable for me for a short time. Why not just say the God that saved me is the God that kind of gets to decide how I live? Holiness is not an attribute that is forced upon us. It is a characteristic that we should long for because it is good to be holy. It is right to be holy. We were made in the image of a holy God. It will be a struggle. But I believe what Peter is saying here is exactly what the Church of Jesus Christ needs. A call back to holiness. Let's pray.